Welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind from HowStuffWorks.com. Hey, welcome to Stuff to Blow Your Mind. My name is Robert Lamb. And I'm Julie Douglas. And we are joining you once more from the HowStuffWorks ossuary, the, the catacombs beneath the HowStuffWorks headquarters, the bone-choked hallways beneath the uh, the bone chandeliers, and uh, under the gaze, the watchful gaze of... Of, of countless human skulls. Indeed. And we're going to rethink bones today. We think of them just propping up the meat bags that we inhabit. But hey, they're doing a lot more than that. They sure are. We are going to discuss the bones of Santa Claus himself. Oh, oh, oh. When we're talking about Santa Claus here, and we're, we're, we're not talking about the, the mythical jolly fat man that lives in the, the North Pole and brings gifts. Moreover, we're, we're talking about the origin uh, of this a bit, the the actual living human being who himself is wrapped in myth uh, up to this day. Um, but we're talking about St. Nicholas, uh, born March 15th in the year 270 CE, died in the year uh, 343 on December 6th. Fourth century Christian saint, Greek bishop of Myra, which is in modern day Turkey, mm-hmm. also known as Nicholas the Wonder Worker. Uh, because he has all these various miracles attributed to him. He has a reputation as a gift giver. And two of the stories are pretty great because they tie in nicely with what we just discussed about Benjamin Franklin because one of the stories involves essentially a serial killer and the other one involves prostitutes. Um, would, you, would you like to tell the prostitute story? Well, the prostitute would be like sort of would-be prostitutes, possibly. There, yes. was, there was a man and his three daughters, and he didn't have the money to provide dowries for his daughters, which meant that they were about to be sold into slavery, which probably means they were about to become prostitutes. So what does old good Saint Nick do? He himself, from a wealthy family, which mm-hmm. in, in, in accounts for that he gave away a lot of his money, is that he took uh, bags of gold and tossed them through the windows of these three daughters on three consecutive nights, uh, thereby saving them from a life of wretched prostitution. Ah, there. We, so there we have gift-giving and also some sort of innate understanding of what's going on with people's lives. The, he knows if you've been uh, naughty or nice or indeed what you really need this Christmas. And also uh, uh, sort of breaking the parameters of someone's house. And- yes. <laughs> yeah, breaking in and just and, uh, and, and getting done what needs to be get, get done. Um, an- another story, the serial killer story, if you want to frame it that way, is that according to legend, uh, there was a famine. And uh, what happens in famine? There's not enough food to go around. And if your business is that of a butcher... What are you going to do? You need meat to sell. People need meat to eat. Sometimes you've got to improvise. Sometimes you have to lure three children into your house, kill them, slice them up, and uh, put their meat in a barrel to cure them as ham. Well, St. Nick caught wind of this so because uh, he was in town at the time. you know. And so uh, what did he do? He raised the ham brothers from the dead using only the power of prayer, like un- unhammed them and rehumed <laughs> them. Right there, uh, presumably right there in the butcher's shop, and and I and I don't know what happened in the butcher's business. I assume it ruined him. Um, that was the, the barber of Fleet Street, right? Was it? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, as you can see, this guy uh, Saint Nick, Saint Nicholas, is full of do-goodery. Literally full of do-goodery. Yes. Because as, as we're about to discuss. St. Nick himself is arguably the gift that keeps on giving. That's right. When he died, he was buried, and his remains uh, were revered as holy relics 
In the years after his death, his tomb was said to give off a sweet smell and to weep a mysterious liquid, which would cure those who touched it. Yes, and this liquid, <laughs> according to uh, those who collect it and, uh, and those who spin uh, the myths around it, is supposedly manna. Uh, and uh, for for those of you not versed in, uh, in your biblical studies, manna is the edible substance provided by God to the wandering Israelites. Uh, precious stuff that, uh, again, just manna from heaven, you've all heard that phrase, and the, the idea is this was literally some sort of a food substance that came from God and just fell right into their laps. Uh, what that food substance actually was, uh, you know, you can just go like a completely supernatural route and say it's just something magical that sustains you. You can you can go along with uh, certain uh, uh, rabbinical writings that say that no one pooped from eating manna, and that in fact it wasn't until several decades later when the manna ceased to fall that people began pooping. I don't know. If, now I'm not not sure if that means that there was no pooping from manna at all. And then when they had to eat other things, then they started pooping again. Or if there was like a block, a buildup of poop over those decades until the manna ran out. I'm not sure. You can. Yeah. These are things that are lost in history. Yeah. They're, they're, they're lost in history. But, uh, but then there are just, there have been scientists that have argued that manna might have actually been something like locusts. Um, it, that it could have been an appetite suppressing cactus sap or even appetite suppressing psychedelic mushrooms, which would have been perfect because then you also have, you know, something like psilocybin, uh, that's, uh, that's playing into some sort of spiritual experience as well. Now, for hundreds of years now, the manna has been collected, mixed with holy water and bottled in small glass vials decorated with icons of the saint and put up for sale to pilgrims, people yes. who were visiting. St. Nick's manna for sale to the pilgrim. And I would like to say, if, if you are, have some of this or are, or have it at, at, on hand or, mm-hmm. or can obtain it, do send it to us. I would love to have some of this manna. So you don't, so you would never have to poop again? I'm, I'm willing to give it a shot. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not really a fan of pooping. So, um, you know, if there's some sort of holy el- elixir that's seeped from the, the bones of a dead saint that I can take and stave that off for a decade or so, I'm, I'm all in. As much as I'd like to delve into a rich poop conversation, <laughs> I'm going to back away from it. Okay. And I'm going to point out that this manna was produced in a couple of locations. So it was uh, in in modern Turkey, what we now is modern Turkey, and also in Bari, Italy, because in 1087, Italian soldiers moved St. Nicholas's bones to Italy, citing invading Seljuk Turks as a concern for the bones' welfare. And here, too, the bones were found to have liquid around them. So there's all sorts of different accounts here of what that liquid was actually composed of. There was um, one analysis of a bottle that was just water. Mm-hmm. There was another one where it was vegetable oil from a long, long time ago. Yeah, because it can essentially be anything. If you just you wrap it in a nice story and enough uh, belief, then uh, yeah, it doesn't matter. Now, when we start asking the hard questions of what is it really, and is there really some sort of... Uh, Liquid that's seeping out of this box mm-hmm. that, uh, and then people are bottling and, and drinking. Um, the answer is a little less fantastic, but, but, but also kind of disgusting. So it's, it's a win-win. Do you think it's gross? Uh, I mean, it's a little bit. We're talking about, I mean, we're still talking about bone water. Um, <laughs> because essentially we're talking about condensation. Uh, Barry's a port town. 
It's a marble tomb. It's below sea level. And uh, there was a 2004 documentary uh, titled The Real Face of Santa in which they actually took a small camera and they jabbed it into the tomb so they can actually look at the bones. And the bones are deteriorating. They're they're lying in pools of shallow water. Mm -hmm. So this presumably is the source of the manna, the condensation, bones soaking in the condensation and then leaking out. Yeah, I mean, because really, as you said, it's underground. Mm -hmm. You have seawater being redistributed around it in these capillaries. So that is a really dank area. And, of course, condensation happens. Um, I'm not trying to poo-poo the the holy water that allows you not to poo-poo, but... (laughs) Yeah, we're I mean, waiting it, for that. It's Thank still you. magical bone water, so I'm 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 happy with it either way. Indeed, and here's a little historical side note on husband killing uh, poisons. Yeah, they used throughout the centuries. Um, because a lot of times that was the only way, like just to yes. get out of a bad relationship. Yeah, you're in a crappy relationship. You have a bottle of this manna sitting around with a little icon of Saint Nicholas on it. Mm-hmm. Maybe your husband has a cold. Maybe you slip in a little bit of poison in there and say, ah, you should really take this. I think it's going to cure you. This happened more than once Hmm. with these vials. And actually, there's a pretty big history of arsenic uh, being used as a husband killer as well uh, that we could go into. But I just wanted to mention that in terms of St. Nicholas. Okay. Well, if you... If you do send a bottle of manna to us, please don't put any poison in it. Uh, or go ahead and put poison in it, because now I'm going to be a little hesitant about drinking it. Yeah. All right, we're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, more bones. Now, if you walk down the hall here of the HSW headquarters ossuary basement, you will see another specimen. Yes, uh, a very curious specimen because the the skull is is elongated, uh, kind of swollen looking, almost kind of a cone head uh, looking skull. And uh, you know, if you didn't know any better, you might look at this and say, "This is clearly some sort of non-human hominid ancestor, some sort of weird cone head uh, ape that predated uh, human human civilization." Or you might uh, look to the stars for an ex- for an explanation. Yeah, a child's deformed skull, later dubbed the Star Child Skull, was found in the early 1930s in the arid region around Chihuahua. Now, at the time, little was known about Mesoamerican civilizations or really any other sort of uh, extenuating circumstances that might shape a skull in such an unusual manner. But this guy found this skull, looked at it, and thought, hmm, this could be some sort of ancient alien civilization relic. And people thought, hey, this is evidence here that, that aliens are around. They exist. Yeah, indeed. I mean, if you if you look at enough skulls that, that seem to be de- deformed, you can begin to pull out any number of ideas about what's going on here. You, you, you constantly see uh, pictures of weird skulls throwing, showing up on the Internet, be it something that presumably has horns or it's or some sort of weird uh, deformation that makes it appear less human. And uh, and you'll see the you know, explanations ranging from the, you know, the, the realistic and scientific all the way into the cryptozoological and uh, and cosmic. Uh, but when it comes to elongated skulls, these these tall skulls, these kind mm-hmm. of conehead skulls, um, you see these 
uh, around the world. You see these uh, popping up uh, uh, just about everywhere, and then and then you have to ask these questions: uh, What's going on here? Who are these co-netted individuals? Right, and I had mentioned Mesoamerican civilizations. Well, this is where you see a lot of examples mm-hmm. of this. And, of course, this would need to be done in childhood because the bones of the skull are much more malleable than. And at birth, the heads of babies were tightly wrapped with cloth in order to give their heads that kind of streamlined, elongated look. Um, of course, the question is why? And archaeologist Cristina Garcia Moreno, director of the research project uh, that looked into this, said that, quote, cranial deformation in Mesoamerican cultures was used to differentiate one social group from another and for ritual purposes. So this is also a largely aesthetic thing. Yeah, I mean, aesthetics is key here. The The idea that a, a larger skull, a taller skull, brings you closer to heaven or gives you a higher social status, or that it means you're smarter, you have a bigger brain in there. Um, and uh, and so you you see variations of this in uh, in various cultures around the world. You see it in uh, in Mesoamerican cultures. Mm-hmm. You see it in African cultures. You see it uh, uh, in uh, some of the Pacific Island cultures. I mean, you even see it in in cultures where there's uh, there's 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 not necessarily any evidence of existing uh, or even recent uh, uh, skull deformation uh, rituals. Uh, for instance, uh, you, you look in, in Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. If you've ever been to uh, a Chinese hotel or even like a Chinese home or a Chinese restaurant, you may have seen uh, uh, statues of these three little men, or sometimes the three big men, depending on the size of the statues, of course, but uh, they're Fu, Lu, and Shou. Um, and they each stand for a different uh, cosmic entity. Uh, and uh, you have Fu that represents good fortune, and he's seen in a scholar's dress holding a baby. And then there's Lu that represents prosperity. But then there's this old man named Shou, and he's holding the uh, the peach of immortality, and he has this giant head. And he's this old man with a giant head because he's old and he's wise, and he presumably spent uh, 10 years in his mother's womb before he was born. Ah, I'm sure that was a happy day for her. Yeah, well, she should be proud. He's old and wise, and, uh, and you know, he's, he's to be venerated. With a giant head yeah. that she gave birth to. Now, uh, the January and March 1967 issue of the French fashion magazine Le Officiel featured the Mangbatu people of Congo, and they practiced Lipombo at the, at the time, again, this, this head elongation, um, although the practice began dying out in the 1950s with the arrival of more Europeans and westernization. But it's an example of it occurring um, in recent history, and because of this distinctive look, too, you'll often recognize it in Mangbatu figures in African art. Yeah, you see depictions of uh, the daughter of uh, Pharaoh Amatep IV, and you can note a definite elongated skull present in both both the art and in the uh, mummified remains uh, of of both uh, Amatep the the uh, the fourth and his son, uh, famous son Tutankhamun, King Tut. And uh, it really depends on who you ask uh, regarding why those skulls are so shaped. Some people will go straight up uh, star child on you and say mm-hmm. that they were it's because clearly. Uh, the ancient Egyptians were uh, interbred with extraterrestrials. Others will say that uh, there was probably some uh, some sort of a skull deformation uh, ritual going on to give them that uh, that appearance, or that it's just mere uh, heredity. Um, you can sort of pick and choose. As far as the star child goes, that skull um, was actually tested the DNA, and it was confirmed that it is in fact a human skull. 
And uh, in fact, it was a male child who likely suffered from hydrocephalus, which is a condition that leads to skull elongation and deformation. So that one's out. Now, another people that actually still practice uh, skull deformation to this day are uh, the Vanatu people. And uh, the Vanatu people associate elongated heads with the folk hero Ambat, uh, who had higher intelligence, greater social status, and closer proximity to the world of the spirits. And that's according to an excellent article from the Australian Museum uh, that I'll link to at the bottom of this uh, landing page for this episode. Now, this might seem kind of strange, this practice, but really this is body modification. And yeah. if you look at it this way, it's not um, really any stranger than taking, say, your skin on your face and stretching it back so it's smooth over your bones. Oh, yeah. Or filling your breasts with, you know, material to make them larger or your penis or your butt, for that matter. I mean, there's we've been... You know, modifying our bodies for a very long time. This is just a different expression of it. Yeah, and more to the point, this is this is not in the same league as something, say, like foot binding. Uh, this is, uh, even though you sometimes see this referred to as skull binding, mm-hmm. uh, there's no evidence to show that this is in any way painful for the the child. Uh, it's generally uh, done by you have to have something to wrap around the child's skull yeah. during that during that time period when the the the, the skull is still solidifying and mm-hmm. I'll get into that in just a second but uh, but yeah there's no pain and and then once they uh, they have actually grown up there's no uh, there's no known detrimental uh, aspect to having a different shaped skull yeah uh, so it's you know it's totally star-bellied sneeches uh, in terms of, of that it's an aesthetic of beauty in that culture not exactly. ours. and who's to say that it's it's not beautiful I mean certainly you look at these images of uh, you know, Egyptian uh, queens, and it, mm-hmm. it looks pretty there. And is it any weirder than anything else we do? Uh, in terms of uh, of the actual ability, the window in which we can manipulate that skull, uh, this, of course, comes back to the fact that babies have soft heads because, uh, essentially because we decided to become bipeds. Uh, well, we didn't decide, but it happened. And in doing so, we, there was a, a certain amount. There's a, a, a certain problems came up. It had to do with the, the the size of the pelvis, and then the head has to squit has to fit through uh, that uh, uh, that pelvis uh, and allow. Um, and then also, you need to allow breathing room for a large brain to grow in there. So you have this uh, this window where uh, the bones and the and the and the skull don't completely fuse together. Mm-hmm. And during that time, you can change the shape. Uh, and and therefore uh, um, alter the finished form of the skull. Yeah, indeed, and that's why you say it's it's not something that is um, harmful to the child or painful. Again, th- these bones are malleable at that point. Yeah, and I mean you see this too as uh, as well with infants. Sometimes if an uh, infant sleeps too much in the same position, you'll get kind of like a flat part on the back of the skull. Um, uh, and uh, there was actually, uh, you actually had uh, something called Toulouse uh, deformities caused by infant headbands in pre-20th century France. Hmm. They're wrapping all the babies in these headbands, and it just ends up changing the shape of the skull. Well, just even think about a child who's in their seat carrier a lot. Mm-hmm. A lot of times the back of their heads will flatten. Um, I'm sure any parents out there who have experienced this can say yes, and you know that does happen, and you have to try to <laughs> shift their head around a lot when uh-huh. they're sleeping to try to even it out. So apparently, in some cases, there there have been cases where doctors have used headgear to try and help uh, readjust skulls that seem to be uh, taking on a less desired form. Mm-hmm. But uh, the, the the research is kind of on both sides as to whether it it, it actually makes a difference. 
uh, to, if you actually need to put a headgear on the child or if you just basically make sure the child is in some different positions to even it out. Now, the next example we're going to cover is actually something that is that we have here. It's, it's in um, a jar of formaldehyde. It's at Jonathan Strickland's desk. He won't let anybody move it, but we still can go why, and admire it. Why is Jonathan Strickland's desk all the way down here in the ossuary? Um, you know, well, it's just one of his locations. <laughs> He's got several satellite well, desks. I, I, he works well, I guess, with the, the skeletons, you know. He does. He needs his, you know, quiet time, and I guess this provides it. It is quiet down here. But what we're talking about is a bizarre hairy frog (laughs) that has cat-like extendable claws, except for they're not like claws, they're they're bones. Indeed. These bones really put any human bones to shame. Mm -hmm. And and really they're enough to make any, uh, I think, any comic book fan also a little jealous, because this is, we're talking Wolverine-esque powers here. Yes. the hairy frog, the Trictobaractus robustus of Cameroon, uh, has this unique ability to flex a few muscles and in doing so break sharp bits of bone uh, off in, in its hind legs and drive them through the skin. Uh, so at this point, each toe has what looks like a thorn or a cat's claw emerging from the skin. Uh, but it's uh, but it's not it's not a claw. It's mm-hmm. not a tooth. It's not keratin. It's not enamel. It's good old broken bone. Uh, which you can then jab its enemies with. I mean, th- it's breaking its own bones and piercing its own flesh yeah. to make a weapon come out of it. It's amazing. Like, we couldn't do it, because we're talking about a compound fracture. If we yeah. get a compound fracture, it's it's horrific, and it needs uh, it needs medical attention right away. Um, and you're certainly not going to go stabbing people in the neck with it, right? But... Uh, but biologists suspect that these bone claws uh, with the with the hairy frog simply slide back into place and everything just re- regenerates. How cool is that? That's um, pretty cool. Here's, here are the specifics. At rest, the claws of T. robustus are found on the hind feet only, and they're, they're nestled inside a mass of connective tissue. And a chunk of collagen forms a bond between the claws, sharp point and a small piece of bone at the tip of the frog's toe. So the other end of the claw is connected to a muscle, and when the animal is attacked or threatened, it contracts this muscle, which pulls the claw downwards, and then the sharp point then breaks away from the bony tip and cuts through the the toe pad emerging on the underside. Excellent. Yep. Can't top that. Well, or can you? I don't know. Because uh, we have another specimen here, also on Jonathan Strickland's uh, desk, which the desk is also made out of bones, just in case anyone's wondering. By the way, we need to move the jar back into the little round circle that he drew yes. underneath, or else he gets really upset. He does. Okay. He does. <clears throat> this uh, this uh, second specimen is the Spanish-ribbed newt, and uh, when threatened, the slimy amphibian strains its ribs until they break through the skin and emerge like a row of sharp claws along its side. Uh, and then uh, if this isn't enough, it also secretes a powerful toxin. Uh, so you really don't want to eat this guy. It like makes it, it makes itself appear to be like the boniest, most toxic piece of fish on the plate. Uh, you know, I'm not impressed. I've seen this at a Victoria's Secret Angel show. <laughs> I, uh, you, yeah, you do see some underwear models that do look like their bones are about to just pop out. Yeah. Pop the out rib bones are right there. Their adversaries. Yeah. Um, God, it's just, uh, do you ever, I imagine you've, you've had a leg, leg cramp before, right? Where you're, mm-hmm. you're kind of stretching and then suddenly it cramps. Yeah. 
And I wonder sometimes, like, if you just tried to injure yourself through sheer flexing of muscles, you know, could what? How much harm could you do to yourself? And then I think of this example, and it makes me cringe. Not that, not that you can do this, but I'm saying here's an animal that just by thinking about it and straining mm-hmm. it, maybe not even thinking about it, depending on how you look at animal cognition, it just makes its bones pop out of its body. Well, I used to be really impressed by the sea cucumber, which can take oh, all of its internal organs and eject it from its anus at people, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but this is, I mean, that it doesn't have anything on this guy, you know. Yeah. And much like the uh, the hairy frog, this newt can simply retract its ribs back into its body and then regenerate the damaged tissue. Yeah. Easy peasy. Lemon yeah. squeezy. So there you have it. A couple of uh, of non-human skeletal examples that are definitely worth looking at, definitely worth uh, envying even if you... Uh, if you look at your own skeletal system and its its relative inability to um, break out of your body and harm people, uh, but as we discussed earlier, the, the fist itself is a, is a highly evolved uh, punching skeletal system. So, uh, you know, it all works out. Yeah. So this is kind of uh, rethinking of bones, how we house them, how we use them. Uh, just a whole little uh, poo poo platter. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. the, the ossuary is pretty expansive down here. Uh, there are various other specimens we could have discussed. And, you know, maybe we'll we'll return in the future and discuss more of them. Uh, but for now, uh, it looks like we're out of time. I think I hear Jonathan. Do you hear Jonathan? I hear his footfalls. Okay, we need to get out of here. Okay. Yeah, before he finds us. Walk carefully because there's some bones littered on the floor. That wasn't us. That wasn't us? Mm-mm. Okay. Well, we better get out of here. Hey, in the meantime, uh, be sure to check out StuffToBlowYourMind.com. That's where you'll find all the articles that we've uh, written, all the blog posts, all the podcast episodes, all the videos, links out to our social media accounts. You name it, it's there. And if you'd like to drop us a letter, please do so. And you can email us at BlowTheMind at HowStuffWorks.com. For more on this and thousands of other topics, visit HowStuffWorks.com. 